0: This is Melissa, and today is June the eleventh, two thousand and twenty-three. This is Redux number one hundred and thirteen. It is from October twelfth, two thousand and seven. Alan's talk on RBN Radio: Meet Your New Spouse, Rutting with Robots, Clankers for Wankers. And the title says a lot. There, Alan gets into how having a sexual relationship with a robot is being pushed, and he talks about how that is promoted through novels and in other forms of entertainment. Um, This is a good talk for a lot of reasons, but I was speaking with someone the other day who said, you know, when you think about everything that's going on in, in culture right now, what is being promoted, targeting the children with sexual imagery and the transgender agenda aimed and directed at them. And do you think about what Alan often said about how before 9-11, the international censors got together and said, okay, so we have made homosexuality in movies acceptable. It's time to push for bestiality and intergenerational sex. And that would be good to remind listeners of that, you know, they can see the progression towards where we are today. Well, I cannot find those articles. I, you know, some years back, I did a little online search for them, and they've possibly gone down the memory hole. But Alan said that right before 9-11, a professor in the U.S. and a professor in Canada had made that remark after coming back from an international um, film censors gathering. And what I finally did was a keyword search with the parameter of just the month. I mean, I did the whole year before nine eleven, and I came up with some interesting articles. But I narrowed that down to just August of 2001. And what was revealing to me was the sheer quantity of articles that had to do with movie rating sex and violence portrayed in movies and there were some scholarly studies that came out at that time and then there were um more popular fluff pieces one in particular was in august of 2001 when new yorker magazine covered jack valenti who was the ceo of the motion picture association of america a very interesting organization. I looked around to see, you know, what what was going on in the news that kind of tied in to this theme of how things are promoted. And then I went back to the articles, and some of them were long. The one I'll put up from the New Yorker magazine, which is a profile piece covering Jack Valenti, is really interesting, and it led me to a whole line of inquiry because Jack Valenti if the Motion Picture Association of America is a lobby group lobbying Congress in Washington DC on behalf of the film industry I think at the time that it was created in 1922 it was representing five major studios when this article was written in 2001 it uh, was representing seven major studios. And I think today it claims to represent all of the major studios, plus Netflix and a few other entities. But what was fascinating to me was the intertwining between Hollywood and Washington, D.C. And we've heard Alan talk about how the Pentagon uh, has... Representatives who will work on a Hollywood movie, they'll work with the producers and, you know, they'll give them themes that are going to be covered in the movies and, you know, input on whether um, a fighter jet is the right fighter jet for the period piece. But it is more, uh, it's a little bit more sinister than that. But when I looked into the Motion Picture Association and saw this total, uh, there's no other way to say it, but marriage between Hollywood and Washington, D.C. And going through history from the very beginning, from the very first person who headed up the Motion Picture Association and his connections, down to the present, uh, it was very illuminating to me. And I, I thought that I would prefer to write about this than speak about it because it's, there are so many connections that are interesting, and when I take the time to put it down on paper, um, I can be a little bit more detailed. But what that told me, how the politicians and the, the CEOs of this agency use the stars to promote causes, use the stars to attend dinner party fundraisers for their favorite politicians. It gave a whole new dimension to what Alan would say about how stars are put out there so that we follow them, follow the stars. And I just did a little bit of looking around, okay, who's promoting what? And sure enough, just last month, there's an actress who's been in a lot of movies who said quite proudly that all three of her adult kids identify as queer. So she has three children, and they're all queer. And she went on to say that, She did a telethon called Drag Isn't Dangerous. The woman's name is Marcia Gay Harden. She called anti-drag policies fear-based. What's happening right now is wrong. What drives me is my children are all queer. My eldest child is non-binary. My son is gay. My youngest is fluid. And, you know, they're my kids, and they teach me every day. So she's talking about the anti-drag. She said it's spreading that kind of fear and hatred among other people. I believe this country will fight that, she said. Gay is here to stay. Drag is here to stay. Donate what you can and join us in spreading the love. And then i look to see, whoa, you know, I, I don't really go to the movies or watch television. Just, you know, do a little marathon now and again to get the theme of something that might be promoted but I like to see who were the, the top box office earners um, in the, the actors and actresses. And sure enough, the actress who is biggest at the box office right now is all, also has a movie that's being released in a month that is just completely pushing the envelope of what would have been considered normal a decade ago or two decades ago. And it's quite clear that stars and the, their movie vehicles are not just used for putting the programming across. That predictive programming is so important. It is essential. But the other component of that is when that so-called star is out in public. What do they say? How do they say it? What is their response? Just like this woman, you know, all three of my children are queer and it's a good thing. And when I was looking at uh, one of the past heads, one of the past CEOs of the Motion Picture Association, there was a little fluff piece where... The politician, Ted Kennedy, was talking about the other politician who ended up running the Motion Picture Association, and another famous actress that they were having dinner with, and a quite frank, candid sexual conversation that occurred between the three of them. It was the kind of conversation that nowadays would have been a Me Too complaint by the actress. But what you see there, all of the Me Too aside and the young women now whose cry is feminism and don't do that to me and don't do that to other women, what you have is an ancient system that most of these women will have known when they got in, involved in it where they know, they have to know on some level what they're being used for. And I think what's going on with the Me Too was just uh, women finding some kind of peace with what they decided to become involved in. That's all. Um, It changes nothing. It changes nothing. The movies that are produced are there to contaminate culture. They will always be there to contaminate culture. They will be weaponized to move us and our sympathies in a specified direction. So I will put up some articles that I found that tie into this. Um, This was a really good talk that Alan did not just cover this, but he covered aerial spraying and uh, crisis scenarios. and. How a pandemic might be used in the future. Remember this is 2007. Uh, habitat areas, what they would do to get you into a habitat area, and all of this we're seeing right now, are we not, in uh, the climate lockdowns that are being talked about and the 15-minute cities. So I will supply you with stories. I will write something that will at some point between now and when I upload that we'll dive just a little bit deeper in the intersection between politics and Hollywood. And what I was left thinking is there's not really a strong... Division. You can see. You know, Alan used to point out that politicians and actors shared in common that definition of the uh, attention-seeking uh, psychopath, the uh, hysterical attention-seeking psychopath, and I, that came from the book *Ponerology*, that pointed out the the high incidence of psychopathy in various professions, and I believe that there were more psychopaths in politics than in the uh, entertainment field, but there is no doubt from this little foray that I did that Hollywood and Washington, D.C. are much more united than I ever knew. So here is Alan Watt, Meet Your New Spouse, Rutting With Robots, Clanker's for Wankers, October 12, 2007.
1: Enjoy. Thank you. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. It is October the twelfth, two 2007. For newcomers, as always, I suggest you look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com for lots of free talks and download on the past histories of how we, we got to where we are today and where we're going and I mentioned the different groups and organizations that are behind it. And they really are organizations, very organized indeed, with foundations backing them up that last for many, many generations. And that's why they can plan something even hundreds of years ago and make it happen. The big builders are at work all the time. For those who speak the other languages of Europe, look into EU and get the downloadable transcripts in the various tongues of Europe. Now, so much is happening all the time, and people tell me that they're bored. They're bored surfing the Internet, which I don't do because I've got so much going on inside my head. The people who are bored going through the Internet don't realize that they're being taken on a magical mystery tour, a magical mystery tour where anything is possible because predictive programming moved From the novels into the science fiction movies, into regular movies, and into dramas on television, and now it's into the internet. And some of the biggest sites out there on Atlantis and so on uh, are not run by just little individuals passing the time. You can tell by looking at them that the big groups of people behind it, because they must keep you mystified. And when you're mystified and intrigued, you get dragged in very easily into possibility thinking what is possible, and that's called predictive programming. You find that you can go into all areas of what will come, never realizing there are a thousand directions that humankind could go if they were left alone, but were guided along a certain path so that the next step and the next step and the next step seems quite logical to us, judging on what we've got already, and that's called predictive programming. A very important term. Uh, coined by Tavistock Institutes in London that really uh, helped start off this scientific type of technocracy using psychology on vast amounts of people. Now, what they also do is fund novelists, the big novelists that that suddenly become famous and are kept up there writing on a blast of hot air for a long time before they fall down. But those novelists, especially in science fiction, the Arthur C. Clark's and the Isaac Asimov's that turned out all the the books on robotics and the interaction of robots that would come with humans and all of this kind of stuff, that's predictive programming again. It's not because they have tremendous imaginations that they do this and they get away with it, it's because they are led in because they belong to the futurist society and the futurist society. It's a conglomerate of big foundations, think tanks, who bring in the authors and finance them, tell them little bits of the truth and tell them to write stories around those truths. We'll be back in a few moments after these messages with more on this particular topic. Hi, folks. I want to walk back with Cutting Through the Matrix and just talking about predictive programming and how those things which fascinate us, the imagination is used against us by dishing us out certain stories with ideas embedded in them that lead to predictability so when the real thing comes along we don't think there's anything odd about it now we saw this with isaac asimov who wrote all the books on robots and irobot and i think they made it into a movie eventually and various other ones on the laws of robots. So here again, the lawyers are going to a killing when they bring in robots with artificial intelligence. Uh, so then they always add to them to layers and layers of lawyers with every new invention that comes along. But uh, Asimov's job was to get us used to the idea that these things will eventually be in the workplace. And we, we've seen that, of course, through the 60s, 70s, and 80s in the, the auto factories. And they want to bring them into your homes, etc. Now they're going a step further, you see. Now that they've successfully pretty well destroyed the family for most people, and even the bonding between generations that that also had to go, has been very successful because grandma and grandpa are dumped off in the old folks' home where they exit the world rather quickly once they're inside. And we find that the youngsters are brought up by the state. The state gives them their scientifically designed indoctrinations, so that any parent that's there will have less inputs uh, to the child. The child will uh, run off the child's back like like water off a duck. And that's what Bertrand Russell would refer to when he says the scientific indoctrination from kindergarten onwards will make it impossible to contaminate the child by the parents with their old fashioned ideas. That's been successful. So everyone's been divided and conquered, you see. And as we all think we're free in the little group that we belong to, that we're in, we're being managed by big brother at the top, who's now become uh, the new husband even. He's a big, powerful husband uh, uh, of, of, of the women, for instance, when, it, when uh, Bush shouts out that he's, he's gonna protect everyone, take away your rights, but protect them, give them free daycare and all this kind of stuff. You just compare what he's saying to what the communist planks were, the 10 planks of the communist manifesto, and it's all been done because now the state is big brother, he's big father too, and no one else can stand against him because there's, there's no group left in the natural fashion to stand up to him. And, and so they've been very successful with that. They said they'd have to eradicate the family. The men themselves are too busy watching sports and swigging their chemical beers to, to pretty much notice in what's happening around them. They hear that they're very depressed because they have no function anymore. But here's an article that's come up now to do with, with robots, because they're looking forward to the next step, you see, before the, they make the, the new man or hermaphrodite or whatever it happens to be to take the place of us. And it's, it's to do with creating new robots that will be a, a sexual partner. Now, you, you think of all the play toys introduced and made rather uh, popular among certain peoples, over the years, and all the masses of porno on the Internet, which they made sure they never liquidated. In fact, that was the first thing anyone heard about the Internet, there'd be lots of porn in it to make sure that everybody went into it. And, and it's still on the go, of course. Heavily funded porno sites, don't doubt about it. Here's a, an item from Breitbart.com. I think it's in the Netherlands. And it says Maastricht, Netherlands, October 11th. University of Maastricht in the Netherlands is awarding a doctorate to a researcher who wrote a paper on marriage between humans and robots. David Levi, or Levy, a British artificial intelligence researcher at the college, wrote in his thesis, intimate relationships with artificial partners, that trends in robotics and shifting attitudes on marriage are likely to result in sophisticated robots that will eventually be seen as suitable." suitable marriage partners. Now, I can remember when all the big dating services started up and they started putting their ads on television and so on, and you just simply punched in supposedly what you wanted and what you were like, and they'd find a suitable marriage partner. Well, here's the end product of it, you see. They're going to give you something that isn't real at all. And so Levy here has got his doctorate on this darn thing that's been given to him, obviously, because he's in the know. I'm sure you'll be related to the guys in Hollywood who we'll gave him a few tips on what to write about for his thesis. Levi's conclusion was based on about 450 publications in the fields of psychology, sexology, sociology. There's lots of ologies around these days, have you noticed? Lots of ologies. Robotics, materials, science, artificial intelligence, gender studies, and computer human interaction. A very important part, the human. Uh, and computer interaction. Uh, this is the interfacing they've been experimenting with over the years, even from the days, the early days of Aldo Huxley, where they want you to to be in, in the Internet, in the Matrix itself. And for the outside world, they'll give you a robotic partner. So what they're doing is severing the ties between people all together. That's the real intent of all this. No real human contact. You'll be a battery for the Matrix And it says here, too, to continue, um, the thesis examines human attitudes towards affection, love, and sexuality. Imagine loving a robot. All you do is buy them some hydraulic oil once in a while and charge their batteries. eh? Love and sexuality. And concluded that the findings are just as applicable to human interaction with robots for the future as they are to the relationships between humans of today. And so that's from United Press International. And so here they go with the next step of depersonalization of the individual until we're we're all dealing just with robots in an awakened state and in a complete fantasy when we're in the matrix. Uh, That's where they're heading with all of this. And it's a step-by-step process that was discussed a long, long, long time ago because even the old black-and-white silent movies, they made movies about this very thing. And here it is. They never change their agenda. And these characters here, like Levi, they don't dream up uh, this kind of stuff. They're given access to information, just like the writers are given access to information. So they can put the ideas in our heads that somehow it's inevitable. And the more it's parroted by media and gets trendy and comes out through magazines and little documentaries, the more we'll come to think it's quite a normal step to take until we're totally isolated from every other human being on the planet, and then you're totally conquered. That's been the dream of tyrants for ages. The problem is most of the sheeple, and I'm sure you know lots of them, will go for this kind of thing, a made-to-order robot, the perfect spouse, and uh, as I say, all you need is a bucket of hydraulic oil and a good recharger for the batteries. And no doubt you'll have to rent them, and be renting forever. And once you get addicted to whatever turns you on, you won't be able to turn it off. You'll just keep paying and paying and paying, because we're so predictable. What a sin, eh? But there you go. It's, it reminds me, too, of the month before September the 11th, uh, the 9-11 deal in 2001, because in the newspapers, for the for the first time it mentioned... That the annual meeting, the world meeting of the censorship committees, each nation had a censorship committee. Now, I used to think that the censorship committee of your country were the ones who decided what was good for you to watch, supposedly, to keep the old system going. But I was wrong, because it turned out the, the, the spiel they had in the newspaper has said that their job really was to push the envelope by testing how far they could push the public with the next step and the next step and the next step. And the day after they came back from this international meeting, a professor in Canada and a professor in the United States both put articles in different newspapers which were word for word exactly the same. And they said that they'd won... The, the rights for sexual revolution, sexual rights, sexual preferences, and so on. And the next step was for bestiality of all things. So I, I'm still waiting to see where the bestiality will get introduced in comedy shows until we all accept it. And they said it was okay as long as it didn't hurt the animal. Because animals have rights, you see, under the Earth Charter from Maurice Strong. So, It is quite amazing to see how we're managed by these people, and that everything that you think is there for a particular purpose, generally is there for an opposing purpose, definitely an ulterior purpose. Now, today off this topic here, I'm going to go on to this upcoming massive exercise that's taking place in Canada and the U.S. on October the 15th to the 19th, run by Homeland Security in North America and all all the other agencies in Europe. And some listener had emailed me details on Chandler in Arizona. It's sort of an attached city to Phoenix, as far as I understand. And Chandler seems to, when you look into chandleras.gov, you'll see uh, all their their township uh, info and their, their, their spiel on themselves. And it seems to be pretty well a model state or a model city for this homeland-type exercise they're going to have. Hi, folks. I want to walk back with cutting through the matrix, and just going through the matrix of the new habitat areas, because a lot of people are already in the habitat areas, or some of the areas, anyway, and they don't know it yet, because there have been, for some years, some model cities, model cities that have gone along with all the UN proposals and their building techniques and the layer of the roads and their systems with citizens' committees and and all that kind of uh, thing. Those regulations and rules uh, contain society, the modern society. And Chandler in Arizona, as I say, seems to be one of those model habitats where everyone probably thinks they're very free because they can go to the store and do a lot of different things, But in reality, they're one of the the main places that have been picked as a model state or city for the homeland security idea of containment. And coming up, if you look into the news section or the news articles from Chandleraz.gov, you'll see that they're going to give a pre-flu shots during this exercise as well. I guess by diverting people off the main highways and to a certain area where you'll be patriotic and take this free, what they're going to tell you, is a flu shot. And I have it on good authority, too, that the spraying over that particular city is pretty intense now. And I suspect they'll keep that up all through the exercise to make the people more compliant. They'll be doing studies on the the people to see how they accept all of this hullabaloo Exercise of Homeland Security and all the related response teams that are involved with it. There'll be a lot of psychologists there, I'm sure, observing the condition of the people and just how they react. You probably notice now when you're stopped on the street, you've already been stopped for years with the right programs, the Mothers Against Drunk Driving, that was the the method to get that brought in, getting us used to being stopped on the roads when before they had have a darn good reason to stop you. Now they don't, to do it as a matter of course, especially on long weekend holidays and times like that. And we've been trained step by step by step. So when the military end up on the highways, we'll probably react the same way. At least most people will. They won't even ask questions. Uh, That's how laid-back people are. But if you spray them enough too, I'm sure they're being tranquilized as well. Because, as I say, that's been discussed by people at the top uh, in high positions of the military, spraying entire cities with tranquilizers in times of emergency to keep them tranquil and stop them from rioting and so on. So I really do suspect that that will be done uh, over Chandler and other cities as well. Now, Chandler, at least Arizona, was singled out during that report that the Pentagon gave out, even though... It It brings in the whole of the Americas, really, except for most of Latin America. But for some reason, they mentioned Arizona. So I think it's going to get special treatment and be a test center for a lot of different things. So for those in Arizona, I'd appreciate it if you keep your eyes open and note any effects that you feel yourself, like tiredness, bronchial problems, things like that. Does anything really bother you during that whole period or not? And, And let me know about it. Uh, this is amazing what really is going on. And what it seems to be to me as well, is that it follows up on a test that was done in some parts of Michigan as well, uh, where some hospitals had their their uh, volunteer staff going through decontamination tents recently, a couple of weeks ago. And at the end of that, they also got these particular pre-flu shots, they told them. It looks to me like they're getting us all geared up for some kind of outbreak and that can be done so easily. You know, all they have to do on television now is show us the men with the decontamination suits in on carrying a patient on a stretcher in some Hollywood studio somewhere and we'll all think it's really happening. That's all they really have to do to get us to believe them. And then out come the Homeland Security and all the related associations to containers. And that's my big fear. I think that's the one that they will use down the road to make us all comply. And under the guise of plagues and all this kind of stuff, they will also direct us where to go for safety. Great way to clear rural areas especially and bring people into the new habitat areas which will just be the large overcrowded cities. We do live in a system that's like the Wizard of Oz rules over and the Wizard of Oz is just a conglomerate of the mass media that take their... They take their, their tunes and play their tunes from the big foundations, the big think tanks, like the Club of Rome, one of the premier ones. We are supposed to simply be downloaded and comply, and most people unfortunately do. We're, we're coming down to the wire now where you have the people who are completely gone, they've never been alive, to be honest with you. And that's what they meant in all ages, Let like the dead bury their dead. Those who've never been alive... We'll never know really what's happening, and you can't help them. I'll walk back with cutting through the matrix and just going through some of the mind boggling things we have to contend with today. But as I say, unfortunately, most people are so conditioned, so incredibly indoctrinated from a very early age, massive indoctrination that continues with television all through their lives. And most people will watch four hours at least of television per evening that you'll never snap them out of it. So this war is not between them and anyone else. It's only a war between those who know and those who are doing it and bringing it upon us all. You'll find there are historians who've taught themselves much of this material that I give out. They're self-educated as far as that goes because the big professors in the universities tend to be, again, hand-picked and selected and belong to the Council on Foreign Relations in the Americas and the Royal Institute for International Affairs in Britain. They know what they're doing. These are the same professors who pick the Rhodes scholars. They pick the ones who are going to be your future leaders of different countries in the world. These were also the same professors uh, belonging to these same institutions who picked out the guys who became spies and double agents during the Cold War. Because at the very top, you see, the Royal Institute of International Affairs knew that they ran both sides. And the poor saps who became the spies didn't know that. They thought it was all very real. That's what Peter Wright eventually was finding out for himself, and he worked for MI5 and 6. So professors are paid for, bought and paid for. They're in the ivory tower. They have status. They have power. They they get applause and they're not going to give up their fat salaries by telling the public the truth. That's how carefully constructed the system is. They don't make mistakes by promoting the wrong people to the top in any profession. We must be kept in the dark, and in the dark we certainly are. At least most people are. So the war, as I say, is between the 3% who understand this but don't have any power to sway it into any other direction except what we're doing, and those 3% who run the world and run the moneyed institutions of the world. That's what the war is about. And hopefully we can deflect this, as I say, it's like a big comet coming in. Hopefully we can just hit it in the right place and deflect it off in some other direction. When you see how long it's taken to get this far, which really is thousands of years, Because the average person, if they go into Revelations, which is a revealing, remember, you reveal a plan. You don't prophesy a plan, you reveal it. That's why it's called Revelations. They have all of this. They have all of this in Revelations if you understand the esoteric meanings. Now we've got a caller from Germany. Are you there? Hello? Yes? Oh, hello, Ellen. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I just want, uh, my name is Stefan Hartmann, I call from Germany, I just wanted to ask you about something, about the importance of symbols, because uh, you you talk on different levels, and one level is uh, normal politics, and the things that are going on, and another level is symbols that are encoded in uh, movies and some, and everything, and I just wanted to know, Is is it really important because you don't have to know about symbols to read something like the New World? What is the importance of symbols? That is my question. The importance of symbols is that the symbols themselves are archetypal images. And this is what Carl Jung, if you go into his books on symbology, Carl Jung uh, gave more out to the public probably than any other person. And these archetypal symbols, what it means is that every child in every nation, if you give them a pen and pencil and paper, they'll sit and scribble pretty well the same types of symbols of stars and circles and so on. And uh, the occult system that runs this use the very same symbols with slight variations here and there. They modify them slightly. But your, your subconscious mind does recognize these symbols, and they comprise a language of its own. And this language, when you see symbols repeated or given in a certain sequence, act like a language, a spoken language to your subconscious, and they they can actually influence your behavior or your thoughts. Because um, Jung himself reduced it down to uh, conscious mind, subconscious mind, and then the unconscious mind. Unconscious doesn't mean totally dead. Unconscious means it's the big C where all thoughts come from it's from the unconscious you get your nightmares where you could do things you would never do in real life Uh, things that would be unthinkable for you to do but but they're dragged up from this big sea this primeval sea that's in within us all it's also where the creative ideas can often originate from so your, your subconscious or the unconscious even can recognize these archetypal symbols and those who understand these sciences, because they're very, very old sciences, can put them in sequences and repeat them. And your behavior can be altered or modified just by uh, you casually viewing them uh, on a regular basis. If I can recognize these signs, then uh, I'm able to deflect that. Yes, when you are conscious of what they are, you can deflect them. It takes a bit of practice, but. But you can actually do it, and uh, it 's much easier when you go into the symbols themselves and you understand every level of what the, each one means, because they can comprise a whole range of meanings which alters again according to the sequence they 're put together in, and when you understand all of the the, the, the degrees of the symbols, uh, then you become you have a shield up against their influence upon you because your conscious mind thinks and recognizes them for what they are. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for calling. Now we've got Robert in Canada. Are you there, Robert? Hello? Hey, Alan. How are you tonight? Not so bad. Oh, that's good. Uh, Robert in Halifax. Hi, uh, a couple of weeks ago there, Alan, um, my girlfriend and I, we hosted a uh, 9-11 truth party, and uh, we had to talk to Bill Deagle for, for a guest speaker. Mm-hmm. Anyways, after, after the uh, get-together, we uh, put up some posters in our, her apartment building, just telling people in the building that we had hosted it and about the website and stuff. And A couple of days ago, we were looking at the posters, and someone had taken a, it looked like a nail or something sharp, and they drove it into the wall where the word truth was. There's 9-11 truth, and they're putting holes in the word truth. Mm-hmm. It just seems like the word truth seems to, seems to scare people these days. Uh, yeah, truth, you understand, too, uh, this is a high occultic term, truth. That's why they wrote it into the New Testament as well, and you have Pontius Pilate. Pontius' bridge, remember, and a pilot is one who navigates, the navigator, a Masonic term. And so you, you find the Pontius' pilot, uh, when asked by Jesus what it meant, uh, for truth was, he says, what is truth? And the occult, Kabbalah, even today, that was heavily borrowed from ancient Kabbalah, regardless of what some will tell you. Even E. Wallace Budge, the deciphered Egyptian hieroglyphs, said that Kabbalah was far older, and he'd found that out by studying Egyptology. Uh, you, you you'll find uh, that that uh, truth doesn't exist as such in the Kabbalah. Neither does good or evil. there's only effects and guidance and guidance for those effects and And truth um, is something. see truth tends towards morality or human behavior as being moral, An about innate morality, not conditioned morality in culture that we live in today. Uh, you'll find it doesn't matter what culture you live in, these are all modernly created cultures, and they could reverse them, all the values tomorrow, and those would then become the norm. So to them in the high occult, truth is a dirty word. There's only the effects, and especially the planned and guided effects. Truth is a nasty word because it, it connotates that somewhere within humanity there's innate good behavior, and they don't want to believe that. They want to believe we're just animals. So I'm not surprised somebody would spite truth. Yeah, it's just uh, whenever you, anybody puts a, uh, the bumper stickers around, around the universities, a lot of universities here in Alabama, people are tearing them down all the time. Yeah. But uh, anyways, also I'd just like to invite your listeners to uh, to support you and uh, just uh, support the cause and, uh, and buy your TV. Mm-hmm. Okay. So anyway, thank, thank, thank you, Alan. Thanks for calling. Now, Tim in California, are you there, Tim? Hello? Hello. Yes, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I called in a, a couple of weeks ago, and I, um, I've been listening a lot lately. I had an, another question. Uh, I, it's not really a question. something that you spoke of, and I was wondering if I could get um, maybe a little bit more understanding of it. You talked about one time the power of a thought, and I'm wondering exactly what you meant by that. And uh, can a thought actually be like, you know, um, weighed or does it have a mass to it? What exactly is it? And... I'll take the answer um, off the air. Okay, I'll start with the latter part there. can It be weighed uh, and basically scientifically proven. The proof is self-evident, so science can't prove it. They can't weigh it, measure it. Uh, It's like spirit, they can't weigh it. They've tried and they've given some cons out that they could actually weigh spirit. But unless they can empirically prove it and repeat the experiment, they can't prove anything. But what they all admit to is that thought exists. They all have their own various theories about thought. And they do also admit that a thought uh, that is spoken, and this is why you find in their book, the Old Testament, which is the rule book of a system, you'll find that first God spoke the world into existence. So speaking itself, speaking a thought, because first comes the big idea, then comes the will to use it, then comes the speaking or the ordering of it. That's all Masonic, and that's where they get it from. It's, It's Genesis or the gene of ISIS, as they call it. And and a thought itself can bring whole changes, changes to the whole world, as was seen with with all the great movements that led up to this totalitarian system we're going into in the Hegelian dialectic. So, however, you'll find that people like Arnold Toynbee, Professor Arnold Toynbee, who was a, a top globalist, and he taught the Rhodes Scholars back in the 1930s, there were two generations of Arnold Toynbee's, both taught at I think at Oxford University in England in the 1930s. 32, I think, he gave a, a, an international speech to the International Workers Association because they ran the left and the right parties from London, and he said that a thought that is that is pure and intense can be picked up by certain people across the planet simultaneously, who will then take their idea and then bring it into action, so they themselves believe that a thought has a particular force outside of what science can detect. Now we generally call it uh, basic telepathy, uh, a form that all children have. Uh, children who are uh, or best friends when they're young will often start singing a song at the same verse, at the same time, and they'll turn around and laugh at each other And that kind of behavior is rapidly drummed out of you at school where you're taught to behave, be quiet, and repeat after me. So they're very afraid of this particular little gift that animals actually have. Um, There's no doubt about it. Uh, People who have observed animals in various professions would love to deny it, but they cannot deny that animals sometimes will all meet together at a certain place, even though they'll live miles and miles apart, and they have no idea how the word gets out. And, and how they just know where to come at, the, at a particular time. So animals have this almost as a survival mechanism. I think people have a remnant of it too, some more than others. I and mean, the, the problem is in this whole realm. Don't go into the faker people, the fakeries that are out there. There's too many of them, uh, all playing in the new age and pretending they're they're uh, gifted in certain ways. Telepathy itself generally is not something. Uh, that most people can switch on and off at will. It's not to do just with predictions either, but but there's no doubt about it. A thought that's pure, and this goes back to the ancient Greeks who talked about it as well. Uh, Plato, uh, Democritus, and other ones talked about it, that a thought is like a a form. They called it a form. The force of the thought they called forms. Uh, In other words, an invisible force that someone could into existence from nowhere or from somewhere they could never ever fathom. And once it was formed with a particular idea in mind, it could roam the planet for hundreds of years before it eventually faded away. And they were tremendous believers in these things. And we shouldn't poo-poo the ancient Greeks because the the aristocratic crew that comprised the philosophers in ancient times uh, were certainly not romantics by any Uh, by any um, means these characters were definitely empiricists they they studied the sciences they had tremendous sciences at work in those days and uh, for them to admit to something like that means that they themselves believe it and I know that in the high occultic circles they still believe it today you'll find that in countries like the US and Canada the big masonic groups or lodges are put out in what they call regions. The word region, even for the regionalization of countries, comes from Freemasonry, as your educational system. They started that up too. And uh, they have their big lodges set up in triangles, and they have these triangular meetings on certain nights when they claim at the top themselves that they've forced their will upon all those inhabitants within the triangle. So whether you believe in it or not, There's no doubt that the ones at the top actually do. But uh, but that's that's what we're dealing with too. We're we're dealing with people who have created a form of atheism in society and yet they actually have a a belief within their own groupings, a belief linked to ancient times uh, to do not just with a form of telepathy but to do with force. It's always to do with force, directed force and power and the three unworthy craftsmen of course really refer to yourself within yourself you can have the good craftsman or the unworthy craftsman you can either be hermes Trimagistus or it can be the three craftsmen that destroys the master builder which is yourself again and the first thing of course is thought you have to have the thought or the plan and you have to have action, any of the proper emotion or intent. If any of them are wrong, the building project will end up in disaster. That's what it all really means. Hi folks. I walk back with cutting through the matrix and just before we end up I'd like to mention that I'm kept afloat here by people buying the books on the website and the discs or donating and I should truly really plug myself with my shameless self promotion. ...because otherwise I won't be here very long. And this show was pretty well brought to you by yourselves... ...for those that contribute and keep it going... ...and get something out of it. I don't go into the hype of terror, terror, fear, fear, fear. I could certainly do so, but I refrain from doing that... ...because there's no point in helping the big boys... ...freeze you into submission through terror. And every day, if you read enough newspapers... ...there are dozens of articles and bills promoted by different politicians. These these bills really are predictable, so nothing shocks me personally. I know the agenda. I know what's to come. So the names that bring particular bills forward for law introduction, they're irrelevant. The names are irrelevant. The people themselves are irrelevant. Because if they weren't there, they'd simply pick other ones to put out the same bills. These guys don't run themselves. They're told what to do. And they're just little psychopaths at the bottom. And they want to get a name for themselves, of course. And we are run by psychopaths, unfortunately. They don't see themselves as being deviant. They see themselves as being superior. And they think this system is like the law of the jungle. Uh, That's why they have the Lion King. Uh, Read Rudyard Kipling's other Masonic works, and The Man Who Would Be King, a classic, well worth seeing. But the king of the jungle is the lion. And you'll find as far back as Babylon, it's, it's really the small lion. Lawn is lion, you see. And they've uncovered the walls and the gates of Babylon. And you'll see the two lions at the, the Lion's Gate, as they call it. London it also has the Lion's Gate. At one point it was called that, before it was called London. And the Lion's Gate is, where, is because that's where they keep the royalty, the young lions. And the system is ancient. It never really changes. It always has the same uh, descendants at the top, at the helm, uh, navigating the ship. We are long for the ride and to produce and consume and to bring the great work into being for them, on, for their behalf basically, not for our own benefit. And once our job is over, we're completely disposable. That's what they have lined up for us. Uh, even this little tidbit about the, the robots, which is nice and funny, and all the rest of it... Um, because there's lots of names you can imagine uh, your new spouse can, be, spouse can be called like Rust Bucket and all this kind of stuff but in reality they're going to phase out the old types of humans that have these diversions of sexuality and contact because the next type of human won't need those things you'll be a true Borg, an original bee an original bee indeed well, from Hamish and myself up here in Ontario, Canada it's good night and may your God or your gods go with you.